This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Previously on The Nod. When I was born, I lived in what was the log cabin. Everly Hairston was born on the Cooley Me Plantation, the very same plantation where her ancestors had been enslaved. They would call us Hairstons when I was living on the plantation, and they, their name was Hoston. Their wealth and their slave holdings earned them the title the Rockefellers of the South. We would have to stay out of school to pick cotton. I hated that. I hated that. When it was finally sold, the Harstons would take 70 cents of every dollar, and her family would only get 30. My grandfather was always praising them. And my grandmother, she would say, oh, you need to stop it. They ain't shit. <laughs> Cooley Me was the economic engine for the entire county, which made its owner, Judge Peter, a powerful man. So many people that I knew had just stayed on plantations, and that's not what I wanted for me. She took the 16-hour trip to the loud, crowded, and rushed tempo of New York City. He takes his hand, and he touched me on my thigh. And he said to me, on your days off, you'll be with me. Oh my gosh, how am I going to get out of this? Several years later, she went completely blind. So I went back to college. I had to fight all the way. Scores of Hairstons started coming together for a family reunion. And Judge Peter was there. As far as any Hairston was concerned, the Harston family had been good to them. And you could have heard a pin drop. Until one day, Everly, who never stopped fighting, picked a new fight. It was like, oh, I don't believe she did that. But I had said it. From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod. I'm Eric Eddings. On last week's show, we introduced you to Everly Hairston, a woman who fought to leave the plantation where her ancestors had been enslaved. Today, we look at how Everly's fight didn't end there, how she found herself digging up a dark history that two families preferred to keep buried. See, you would think that there would be bad blood between the Hairstons and the Harstons, but they had reunions together. They stayed in touch. Even Everly, her family spent Christmases with them. Judge Peter, who ran the plantation when she was growing up, Everly loved when he would drive her to school. Even Everly's parents, who were sharecroppers for the white Harstons, wouldn't speak ill of them. But how could it have gotten this way? And what would it take for it all to come undone? If you want to understand the messy, tangled history of the Hairstons and the Harstons, there's this one story that's a good place to start. It's from the end of the Civil War, when the Harstons were still some of the most prominent slave owners in the South. One of their biggest plantations was called Cooley Me, and one of the slaves on Cooley Me was named John Goolsby. He served Judge Peter's grandfather. John Goolsby was a very important slave. Henry Winsack is a historian who wrote a book about the Hairston family. He was a valet, and he was kind of the head factotum on the plantation before the war, the Civil War. And he went off to the Civil War as an aide to Peter Wilson Harston. 
In April of 1865, Goolsby was forced to make a choice. The Union Army was marching through the South, raiding and destroying plantations in their path. Kulimi was on the horizon. Preparing for their arrival, Goolsby had been trusted with one very important task. As the Yankee column was approaching Kulimi, he loaded up all of the white family silver and, and uh, hid it in a wagon and drove north to another one of their farms. You seriously can't underestimate how dangerous this is. This black man was alone in slave territory with a wagon full of things he knew the North wanted to steal. But he rode on. And when he got to the farm, he buried the silver in a vegetable garden. After he had buried it, he was stopped on the way back by a Yankee patrol who threatened him uh, with death if he didn't say where his owners were and uh, if he happened to know the whereabouts of any silver. According to a book that tells this story, the soldiers said that they heard a slave had buried Major Harston silver somewhere nearby, and they suspected it was Goolsby. They said they'd string him up by his thumbs till he told them where he had hid it. And if he didn't tell them where it was, they would string him up by his neck until he couldn't. So Goolsby, he lied. He said, uh, I don't know anything. He told the soldiers that not only did he not know about the silver, he didn't even know Major Harston. And he persuaded them and then went on his way. There's this phrase, blood is thicker than water. It's usually used as like a shorthand for the idea that loyalty to family, your blood, trumps everything. But there's another, less common interpretation of the phrase. The full phrase, some claim, is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Not family blood or genetics, the blood of a covenant, bloodshed in battle, an agreement made when you're fighting on the same side. That's what ties people together. Now, I don't feel like I can presume to know why John Goolsby buried that silver. Was it that he felt loyalty to the Harstons? Was he worried that the South would win and he'd be punished? Was he trying to protect his family? There could honestly be a million explanations. But here's what we do know. That act formed a covenant, that these families are bound together by a common history, and that the history is positive. Benevolent master, loyal servant. Even after the war, John Goolsby's children and grandchildren would stay on Coolie Me, working for the Harstons. Generations later, one of Goolsby's descendants would be born on the plantation, and she would be the one to finally break that covenant. Her name? Everly Hairston. It was a late summer day in 1996. The Hairstons were flocking to North Carolina for the annual Hairston clan reunion. The three-day celebration culminated in a banquet. More than 500 black Harrisons dressed up in their Sunday best and filed into a massive ballroom. It's like an ode to their ancestry. This is Princess Hairston. Obviously, she's a part of the extended Hairston family. She's actually a friend of mine and introduced us to the story of Everly. Black Harrisons aren't all related by blood, but Princess told us how these reunions bring them together in the spirit of their shared history. They said they would do it once a year, and they were going to invite as many Harristons as they could, uh, whether they were black or white, um, because ultimately they feel that it's part, it's just one family. Black and white. It wasn't just Harristons who were considered a part of this family. It was Harstons too. People like Judge Peter, who'd lived in the big house opposite Everly's family. He would go to these reunions. Now, when black people have reunions, 
We're there to celebrate the fact that we're together. Slavery tore apart our families and erased our histories. So, like, coming together, it feels like a triumph. So I can't lie, this seemed crazy to me. Like, how could you sit in the same room celebrating with a family that once owned your ancestors? Well, there's one pretty big reason. It's this thing that Judge Peter did that a lot of the Harrisons were grateful for. Here's Henry. He wrote a book about the plantation, and the first part of it was the, his family's history and a little bit of the history of the slaves. But much of the book was taken up with a list of all of the slaves that his grandfather had owned, which Judge Peter very laboriously compiled from 20 or 25 different lists. These records date back to the 1800s. Using all this information, the judge built a giant index. And he not only identifies who they are and approximately what year they were born, he identified what fields they worked in in different times of their lives. Did they marry? Did they have children? This is Diana Roman. She's a white descendant of the Harston family. She's been helping digitize the records Judge Peter compiled. What Judge Peter has done is mind-blowing. He's, he's had to literally manually transcribe thousands of people. It had to have taken him his entire life. It is so overwhelming when you sit down and you start to look through these ledgers because they're so massive. It was, it was extremely emotional for me. And <clears throat> I'm going to get choked up talking about it now. Um, it, just, it just felt like there were hundreds of people looking back at me. I can't imagine my family on either side ever having that much information about where we came from. Like, a window that far back into the past is something most Black American families will just never see. A lot of Harrisons were grateful to have this information, and it made sense that Judge Peter would attend the reunions. He's part of the reason why they can trace their connections. There's also a deeper reason why the Harsons were invited, and that goes back to the Goolsby story. See, that understanding of the benevolent master had turned into an understanding that the Harstons had treated slaves well. The black Harstons that I spoke to uh, almost uniformly said that the oral history in their family was that their slave ancestors were very well treated, very fairly treated by the white Harstons. That's Henry Winsack again. They were very, very good at giving you know, prepared, potted remarks about how well they loved each other and how well they were treated and they were so glad to see each other. And and so everybody put on a smiley face. But that changed. Everly and her family went to a few reunions in the 80s and 90s. The darker side of their history was mostly unspoken, hidden underneath the celebrations and pleasantries shared between the Harstons and Harstons. And for 20 years at these reunions, it was surprisingly chill. But there was a lot no one talked about. How the White Harstons had plumbing and Everly's family didn't. How White Harstons took 70 cents of every dollar earned on the cotton that Everly's family picked. How there were a lot of other stories from deep in the past that contradicted the narrative that they were all one big happy family. All of this went unsaid until one year, Everly Harston would utter two words that would drag what everyone thought was history into the present. That's coming up after the break. 
At a Hairston Clan reunion in 1996, Everly was a guest of honor. And that night, she'd be giving the keynote address at the celebratory banquet. She was seated at the same table as the judge and his family. At the time, Everly was giving speeches pretty often about her life. And so she got up and started to give the same speech that she'd given many times before. I was talking about how I had succeeded in life, you know, some of the things that I had done. So I told that story about how we were up in the fields, 10 or 15 yards down that cotton row, I saw a brown snake. So I yelled to my brother, it's a copperhead. I climbed onto a bag on the very top, just trembling and shaking and praying inside. Oh my God, please, there must be a better way of life for me. But instead of just saying what I said, when I was up in the fields. She turned to the judge and said, I thought and I thought that there had to be a better way of life for me, Mr. Peter. (laughs) And you could have heard a pin drop. It was a shocking moment for a number of reasons. One was, you know, a black person just didn't speak to a white person in public that way or even in private. It was like... (gasps) I don't believe she did that. (gasps) (sighs) But I had said it. To be clear, the it was very slight. Like, a casual observer might have missed it. All she said was, Mr. Peter. But by doing that, Everly was calling out years of mistreatment that her family had experienced. And even more than that, to the people in that room, she was highlighting the thing that everyone had gotten so good at ignoring just how messed up the relationship between the Hairstons and the Harstons really was. Like, no one talked about it, but look at that narrative of good treatment. That story didn't hold up when you really looked at it. Henry told us of reports he'd heard of especially poor treatment by the Harstons. One enslaved man was beaten and locked in a barn without food or water for three days. One coolie sharecropper with a hernia had to kneel at the Harston's back door to make his weekly payments to Judge Peter's father. And I mean, it was slavery. Like, even if they were treated quote-unquote well, what does that even mean? With just two words, Everly had dragged those memories back into the light. In that moment, what made you say that? What made you say it that way? Because here he was sitting there all proud of the fact that he was there at the reunion. And yet, what I had to go through, or we, my family, had to go through to live on that plantation, working for little or no money. They got 70% and we got 30% after picking cotton all day. That's what went through my mind. There's a better, better way of life for me. I don't have to work on your plantation (laughs) and make 30 cents out of a dollar when you get 70% and we're doing all the work. I had broken through years and years of quietness, of silence, people not talking about 
what it was like to be on the plantation. And just by merely saying, there had to be a better life for me, Mr. Peter, that broke it. And what, what was uh, Peter's reaction? Like, how did he, how did he respond? He turned completely red. And he got up, he and his wife, and they left. Judge Peter and his family left before the banquet was even over. But lots of other Hairstons came up to Everly after her speech to congratulate her. Oh, a lot of people were hugging me and thanking me. What a beautiful speech. No one mentioned the fact that I had said, there must be a better way of life for me, Mr. Peter. And I didn't realize at that moment that there were some people who didn't like it. In the weeks and months that followed, Everly started hearing from other Hairstons who felt like those two words had opened up an old wound that nobody wanted to talk about. The people that I cared about the most were critical. They criticized me. Princess Hairston, my friend who introduced me to Everly, has a theory about why nobody really talked about these things before. It's about survival. When the information is passed down from people who grew up in slavery to the next generation who is post-Civil War, they only tell them the good things about what happened. They never tell them the horrible things that happened. Well, I don't want this next generation to know because I don't want them to ever get upset about it. I don't want them to ever speak negatively to the white Hostons and we lose something or, you know, we can't find housing or we can't find a job now or the whole town might come against us. And so Black people harbored a lot of pain. The Hairstons actually did get money from the Harstons, scholarship money. So maybe that's a part of the reason why people were upset with Everly. But I could see other reasons why people would be angry with her for digging this history back up. The way I look at it, the silence had gotten them to this point. You know, the idea of white descendants of slave owners coming to the Black family reunion, it's post-racial and it's exciting even. I imagine people felt like, hey, you know, we got here. We made it. Isn't the thing to do now to just move past it all? But to Everly, moving past it wasn't enough. They said, that's the way it was then. Those are the times we lived in. Okay, so what? I don't make excuses. It was the time that we were living in, but was it right? And what's wrong with saying it was wrong? I lived through it, but was it right? Two years after the reunion, Everly went back to Cooley Me with her in-laws to show them where she grew up. It was the first time since the big speech that Everly and Judge Peter had a private moment together. Well, when I got to the front door, he met me there because I had called ahead and said we would be there, which I always would do. And he said to me, come on in, young lady, because I have something to say to you. <laughs> so I didn't like that tone. I mean, you know, oh, what is this all about? So he kind of escorted me into the living room. So I walked in with him. He said, Everly, I treated William and Charming quite well. William and Charming were Everly's grandparents. I said, I disagree. Now, nobody would disagree with Peter. <laughs> I said, 
I disagree. When you hope for what they could have and should have given your family, like, what does that look like? Do you think they should have given some of the land? A house, but a house that had running water and a bathroom. Decency, I said. They worked for you all of their life, all of their life. What do they have to show for it? Nothing. They don't have anything because they gave you their complete life. No pension, no money in the bank, nothing. I disagree with you. And so he said to me, they couldn't do any better. Boy, did that hurt. I said to him, Perhaps they couldn't, but you made them think that they couldn't do any better. In 2007, Judge Peter passed away. He was 93. His son sold the plantation in 2015. When Brittany and I went to visit Everly this summer, she was living with her family, her son, his wife, and three grandkids. Together, they share a custom-built home overlooking the Hollywood Hills. Everyone has their own room. In that beautiful house, there's a window frame hanging on the wall. It's from the cabin where Everly grew up on the Kulimi plantation. Her son ripped it out for her and hung it up in their new home. It hangs next to a picture of the original cabin. It's a reminder of how far they've come. Judge Peter said that Everly's family couldn't do any better than the life that he and the White Harstons provided them. But Everly is living proof that what the judge said simply isn't true. The Nod is produced by me, Eric Eddings, with Brittany Luce, Kate Parkinson Morgan, and Emmanuel Berry, with production assistance from Wallace Mack. Our senior producer is Sara Abdurrahman. We are edited by Annie Rose Strasser, with editing help this week from Catherine St. Louis, Emily Ulbricht, and Alex Bloomberg. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasuka. Engineering from Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. Additional music in the show from Bobby Lord, Nick from Islands, and Talkstar. There's so much more to the story of Everly and the Harrisons than we could possibly fit into a couple episodes. So if you want more, you should go and subscribe to our newsletter. In it, you will be able to go on a visual journey through the complicated history of the Harriston family with archival photos as well as some images from Everly's own personal collection. If you want to see that and get a piece of the nod in your email inbox every week, pull out your phone or whatever you're listening to this podcast on right now and go to gimletmedia.com slash newsletter to subscribe. You should also check out Everly's book, Blind Ambition, One Woman's Journey to Greatness Despite Her Blindness. I'd also like to say a quick thank you to Princess Harrison. She introduced me to this story, as I mentioned before, but she also introduced me to Everly, and that's something I'm forever grateful for. 